If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On this episode, we'll be speaking with the historian Frank Dakota. His latest book, How to Be a Dictator, studies eight 20th century dictators through the cult of personality they each built, creating the illusion of popular support and glorifying their own image. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met up with Frank in London to find out more about the self-styled strongmen and their regimes, plus where we might see some of their techniques on the world stage today. Your book, How to Be a Dictator, The Cult of Personality in the 20th Century, um, focuses on eight figures that many of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, Just to um, introduce what we're talking about today, could you um, talk about this cult of personality as you mean it in this context and how it links these eight figures as well? Yes, I think it's a really good question. The the book does pretty much what it says it will do, how to be a dictator. (laughs) So it really traces every step these eight dictators take to seize power and stay in power for as long as they can. Some fail, some succeed. Hitler dies, kills himself, uh, Stalin, Mao die uh, in their bed. Portrait of Mao still up there. I um, believe that there are two main instruments that dictators use. Um, one is terror, 
and the other one is image. Now, the tower we know, the concentration camps, the secret police, the knock on the door in the middle of the night, the atrocious crimes against humanity. But I think image, in particular cult of personality, we've tended to overlook a little bit. Even though, if you look at the 20th century, literally hundreds of millions of people cheered their own dictators, even as they were led down the road to serve them. So I thought that was rather striking. So the book does focus uh, quite a bit as well on that cult of personality. I don't think it's a French phenomenon. I think it's, it's, it's very much, again, fear and image that go hand in hand. Now, why is this cult so important? Um, because I think there is a paradox at the very heart of modern dictatorship. Uh, people in an age of democracy are supposed to be sovereign. It is they who elect um, those who should represent them. But dictators go for a shortcut. They seize power. And once they seize power through violence, they realize that they must maintain it through violence. And violence is a very blunt instrument. Of course, they need the police. They need a Praetorian guard. They need to rely on armed forces, torturers, spies, informants, you name it. But the cult of personality uh, helps a great deal. Um, they must instill fear into the population at large. But if they can compel ordinary people to acclaim them in public, they will last a lot longer. Uh, now, the second point about the cult of personality has not to do with the population at large, but they're in a circle. These people were not elected. In other words, they are, again, rather paradoxically, uh, weak. They seize power. But by seizing power, uh, they run the risk that somebody else will do exactly the same thing. There might be traitors in the ranks. There might be equally ambitious rivals. So it raises the prospect of a stab in the back. Now, how do you keep control of your inner circle? Of course, there are many techniques, and I go through quite a few of them with my eight dictators. There is manipulation. There are constant purges with people being quite literally dragged out and shot in the back. There is divide and rule. But again, the cult of personality works rather well. If a dictator can compel uh, not only his allies, but also his rivals to acclaim him in public, um, it creates a very different sort of context. And most of all, with the cult of personality, there is a point where since all of them have to acclaim the dictator in public, uh, all of them become liars. And when people lie, it becomes very difficult to find out who thinks what. In other words, it becomes very difficult to organize a coup because you simply don't know who stands where. So in that sense, the cult of personality really makes everyone uh, a captive. Very, very quickly, can you give us um, a very quick introduction to the eight dictators that feature in your work? Yes, I did it chronolo chronologically. I start uh, with Mussolini um, because he's very much the first one, uh, not counting Lenin, of course, with the Bolshevik Revolution 1917, he's the very first one to start his own cult of personality. Uh, Lenin is, of course, glorified uh, already while he's alive, but in particular after 
his death. So Mussolini really must be the first one in there, although one might say he's only half a dictator. Uh, his image has to compete with that of, of course, the Pope, but also the king, and it will be the king who has him arrested at the end of his career, so to speak. Then the second one seems reasonably straightforward, Adolf Hitler. Uh, how could you miss him or Stalin or Mao Zedong uh, uh, being, you know, all of these being this, your classic 20th century dictators? I put Kim Il-sung in there for North Korea uh, to some extent. Is uh, even faster and better than Mao Zedong in controlling, seizing control of his own country, imposing a dictatorship, and promoting his own cult, which uh, assumes pharaonic proportions. And then I thought I had to take three figures which are not necessarily all that well known, but somehow I think shed light on the five big ones. So one of these is Papa Doc. Duvalier in Haiti. The second one is uh, Ceausescu, because he's, he's truly, utterly insane, and probably the only one who truly believes in his own cult, believes is a, a, a genius, the genius of, uh, of Romania. And then the final one is Mengistu. Um, few readers may have heard of him, but he really very much is one of the great mass murderers of Africa, in Ethiopia, of course. So your your first point, um, obviously, you, you said there, there's no cult without that fear aspect. So how did these dictators um, foster their self-image alongside the brutality that um, kind of came hand in hand with their regimes? Well, they work at it tirelessly from the very beginning. Um, Adolf Hitler uh, works at his image and, of course, also works at building up his own party from the very beginning, the early 1920s onwards. It is he who designs those garage red uh, flyers that attract uh, new recruits. It is he who is behind those uh, marches, the music, the flags, the pennants. Um, and also he's behind his own image. He hires a photographer, Heinrich Hoffmann, to produce uh, photos that project uh, sheer strength of character and iron determination. And again and again, um, he works at building up his own image as a charismatic leader. You can read Mein Kampf, for instance. In there, of course, there's a very clear program, you know, uh, abrogate the Versailles Treaty, get rid of the Jews, punish France, make Germany greater, invade the Soviet Union. But there are also all the elements of this Hitler myth, you know, the voracious reader, um, the born orator, the unrecognized artist, driven by destiny uh, to come and save his people. So they work at it uh, uh, they spend a great deal of, of time working at it. Mussolini, by one account, spends pretty much half of his time projecting his own image as the omniscient, omnipotent, indispensable leader of Italy, on, on top of running about half a dozen ministries. So again and again, with every single dictator, it becomes very clear that they are ultimately responsible for building up uh, their own cults. They 
begin with um, a low-key approach, and with every step that they increase the terror, they manage to compel people to acclaim them in public, to cheer them in public. And the key point here, again, to come back to what you said, is that the cult often is seen as a sort of brainless enthusiasm. It's not about that. It's really about making sure that nobody knows who thinks what. So fear is at the very heart of a cult of personality. If you want to know whether it's a cult of personality, um, you go to a country and you find out whether you can find anyone who has something negative to say about the man in charge. If the answer is no, then you will know what a cult of personality is. I say man because they're invariably man. So what about the people that they, they, they ruled over and, and they possibly appealed to as well? What did you, um, did you draw anything for, uh, about the people that, um, that they ruled over? They, they are great actors. Uh, dictators are great actors. In an unguarded moment, Adolf Hitler says that he is Europe's greatest performer. <laughs> Mussolini thought of himself as a great actor. But we forget that ordinary people have to become great actors themselves. They have to uh, chant on command. They have to parrot the party line. They have to invoke the slogans, all of it on command. Cry, cheer, uh, shout on command. Um, there's a methodological point here. Uh, if it is a dictatorship, you don't know what people will think. It's a very basic point. Um, there's, no, there, there's, there's no good way in which we can find out what people really, quote unquote, believe under Hitler, under Stalin, under Mao, under Kim Il-sung. Uh, I'm not trying to say that these dictators have no supporters at all. Uh, the only thing I'm trying to say that as a result of the cult, we don't know who believes what. It's very difficult to say who believes what. But again, there's plenty of evidence in the case of Hitler, in the case of Stalin, Mao, Kim Il-sung and all the others, that there are always people who refuse to go along with this cult of personality. Uh, they're the ones who will be arrested, interrogated, uh, imprisoned, occasionally shot. Um, so it is not just some bizarre ritual. It operates uh, under fear. Now, the point here really about ordinary people is to make clear that the cult of personality is not designed to convince or to persuade people that the leader truly is a great genius. No, the cult is there to destroy common sense, to destroy reason, to sow confusion, to enforce obedience, to literally isolate individuals and crush their dignity. People have to self-monitor what they say, how they say it, and in turn, they start monitoring other people. You've mentioned, as we've been talking, um, a lot about how they uh, edited their own image, and a massive part of this, in many cases, was um, control of the press. Yes. Well, in the case of Mussolini, um, as I said, he's so obsessed with control that um, after a couple of years, he's in charge of about half a dozen ministries. Uh, it's a dictatorship uh, at every level. He will find time to change the colour of a woman's magazine in the 1930s. <laughs> it's the same for Duvalier in, in Haiti, which of course is a much smaller uh, island. 
obviously much smaller population, but Duvalier will prescribe who can graduate, uh, how Creole should be spelt, what people ought to read, um, on which side of the road the car should drive. Uh, an extraordinary uh, dictatorship down to every little detail. They're obsessive, some of them. But all, all of them realize that control of the press is important, that no good dictator will allow freedom of press to continue for very long. In fact, the very first act will be to close down all publication houses and to eliminate step by step every single freedom. This happens in Germany within two or three years, happens uh, under Mussolini in about five or six years. Everywhere freedom of speech uh, becomes a victim. It is then replaced by massive ministries of propaganda. Uh, and these dictators, whether the Stalin, Mussolini, or Duvalier, uh, very carefully scrutinize what happens. What is so interesting in the case of Mussolini uh, is that he replaces those in charge of propaganda every, every three, four, or five years to make sure that he's the one who retains ultimate control over how his image is projected to the rest of the population. So the word of a dictator, whether it is under Hitler in Germany or Stalin or Mao or Kim Il-sung, uh, is everywhere in every newspaper. There are posters everywhere. The voice of a dictator frequently, but not always, uh, uh, will pursue you wherever you go, certainly in the case of Germany, with loudspeaker pillars erected in cities and mobile ones taken to the countryside. Not so in the case of Stalin, who cultivates a very remote image, so you will rarely see him in the newsreels. You will very rarely hear his voice. He very deliberately cultivates an image of remoteness. But again, as I said, Stalin himself is a compulsive editor who will check everything that is said about him in the press. Uh, every photo must be uh, censored and approved. Every word attributed to him must be approved. Uh, so it's a great amount of work, and they work very hard. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to be a dictator, mm -hmm. just in case some of your listeners think that they might have a go at it. It demands a great amount of almost obsessive labor. And I think, to be fair too, it dem demands a, a good deal of talent. Mm -hmm. Some of them are very talented mm -hmm. and not just organizational skills. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I think, you know, in many cases, whether that's their natural state or not, a lot of these uh, men that feature in your book do have this charisma that seems like they can almost turn it on and off in some cases. Yes. Well, one skill they have is that they're great actors. They can literally um, not just dupe foreigners, uh, but people who are quite close to them. I find it always amazing that after years collaborating with Mao Zedong, the number two in charge just before the Cultural Revolution, Liu Shaoqi, still doesn't quite see how extraordinarily duplicitous his master really is. In the case of China, only one man sees through it, and that's Lin Biao, the general who Mao will more or less have eliminated. He dies in a plane accident in September 1971. It uh, puts an end to the role of the army in the Cultural Revolution. But Lin Biao writes at the height of the Great Leap Forward, as ten, literally tens of millions of people are worked, starved, beaten to death. Lin Biao writes, Mao is somebody who will only uh, take credit and he will not be criticized for anything. You must flatter him all day long. 
And then he writes in his own pri private diary, but the Great Leap Forward is a complete disaster. So Lin Biao clearly understands how duplicitous his master really is. The same with Stalin. Very good in presenting an image as a man who's rather simple and quite approachable. Uh, always very good at controlling their emotions. Neither Mao nor Stalin uh, will react when somebody opposes them. They know how to bide their time. They know how to calculate in a very cold manner. And they know how to strike like a cobra when they need to. In the case of Mengistu, uh, he pounds like a tiger. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The ones who tend to fail, in particular Ceausescu, uh, start believing in their own cult. <laughs> I have no doubt that Ceausescu, Romania, after a while becomes quite convinced that he is the genius that the people portray him to be. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Can we talk about the role of visibility in, in this self-curation? Because there's there's often a desire, it seems, to portray, it, with the dictators, to portray themselves as humble, simple, man of the people, an accessible icon. Um, and you, you explore how these dictators made themselves accessible or visible in a number of ways. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, most of them, they're always common features, but you always find an, 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 an exception to the rule. A great many of them do cultivate this image of uh, modesty. Uh, Hitler clearly is not one of them. Um, but Duvalier, Papadoc, and Haiti uh, knows full well that when he presents himself as an electoral candidate in 1957, uh, he has... Uh, virtually no chance to succeed because these elections are really nothing but a showpiece organized by the military. So he assumes the air of a very unassuming country doctor, a man who wouldn't harm a fly, who is devoted to the welfare of his subjects. And of course, the moment he is granted power, with the protection of the military, he turns around and purges the ranks of the army. In the case of Stalin, slightly different too. There is a paradox in the Soviet Union and other communist countries, namely that the Soviet Union is supposed to be the dictatorship of the proletariat, not the dictatorship of one particular individual. It's okay for Hitler and Mussolini to make their own star the guiding principle uh, of their country, uh, to put themselves at the very center uh, of their own ideology, but not so uh, if you are a Marxist-Leninist. So how does Stalin get around this? Well, by creating the illusion that it is not him, but rather the people who demand to see him. It is the people who adore him. It is the population, the masses, 
who pay homage to him because he is the embodiment of the revolution. In the case of Stalin, there's another aspect to this. Uh, his main rival is Trotsky. From 1924 to 1928, he spent his time plotting against Trotsky, who is finally isolated and uh, expelled from the country. But once abroad, Trotsky starts writing about Stalin as a rather devious, underhanded, mediocre character. So what Stalin does is invite a string of writers, journalists, who are invited to visit him in his office in the Kremlin. And he presents himself as a very plain, simple, ordinary man, devoid of all vanity. So again, <laughs> the way these dictators present themselves is extraordinarily calculated. All of them are literally great actors. Um, you you talk about uh, this phenomenon um, that comes from, as a result of this curation of image, that when things perhaps start going wrong within a regime, that um, a lot of the population still might be inclined to blame underlings or blame the party and not the leader. How, how do we see that playing out in the figures that you, you explore in your book? Well, again, it's one of the great advantages of this cult of personality that the dictator towers above allies and rivals alike. Uh, you, you must not forget that um, in the case of Mussolini, and in the case, of course, of, of Stalin, whose main rival was Trotsky, a, a far more um, well-known figure, a far better orator, a far better writer, uh, a far better revolutionary, quote-unquote, than Stalin. They, they have rivals around them. When Mussolini seizes power with his march in Rome in 1922 is but one of several quite determined fascist leaders. So the cult of personality is a way to abase all of them, exploit their rivalries, and have them collaborate in common subordination. I think that, that that's the key here. So as well as being uh, reliant on many subordinates who supported their this image, um, the figures in your book, there are crossovers and, and relationships between them. And it seems that there is, um, there's envy between dictators, that they learn from one another's mistakes. What can you say about, about that? Ultimately, dictators are students of power. And ultimately, you could say my book is a study of power, how to seize it, how to keep it, what to do with it. Um, so what they will read uh, might not just be, in the case of Marxist dictators, the classics of uh, Engels and Marx. It might be anything, anything that helps them to study how to take power, how to keep it. Um, and as a result, of course, they observe each other. They're very interested in uh, how others manage and how others fail. In the case of Mao, good old chairman Mao, um, of course, he takes so much from Stalin, including Stalinism and the cult of personality, but believes that Stalin has failed miserably in spotting his nemesis, Nikita Khrushchev, who, of course, starts de-Stalinization in 1956, three years after the death of Stalin. 
and Stalin's body is literally dragged out of the mausoleum. So Mao's determined not to meet the same fate. What is his answer? I think, in part, his answer is the Cultural Revolution. Since Stalin failed to spot Khrushchev as a potential enemy, uh, Mao thinks let ordinary people hunt down anyone at any level within the party uh, who might have harbored uh, reservations about his rule. So this is the Cultural Revolution. People are pitted against people. Ordinary people can denounce party members all the way to the very top. Um, in the end, it becomes uh, an endless cycle of violence in which people are desperate to prove their loyalty to the chairman. And he reigns supreme. He feels secure enough at the, the very end of his life to somehow rein in the cult of personality. Without wishing to trivialise the brutality of any of these regimes and these people, there are certainly elements of the preposterous that come out in your book when you look at the incessant kind of self-curation of this image. What can you say? Can you give us any, any examples of, of how these, it just when it descends into the ridiculous? I think the more successful ones are the ones who are able to very carefully curate their own cults and control it till the very end without necessarily believing in all of it. Um, let me take Stalin. He is a compulsive editor. He will pour over newspapers, revise articles, look at what he's written and how it will be published. He literally is a gardener who will you know, prune his cult of personality, cut back to then allow it to flourish in, in good seasons, so to speak. The same is true for Mao. I just mentioned that at the very end of his life, as he feels secured, very secure, he um, allows the cult to be somehow uh, cut back uh, f from the height of the Cultural Revolution. Now, what I'm trying to say is that all dictators very much teeter between hubris and paranoia. Hubris because they're surrounded by sycophants, flatterers, and in the end they tend to make all the decisions themselves with, with fatal consequences for huge numbers of people. Stalin makes the mistake of signing a pact uh, with Hitler, for instance. Hitler makes the, the mistake of invading the Soviet Union, which will be his downfall, etc., etc. And the paranoia hubris and paranoia in the sense that they're constantly afraid of others and it doesn't help uh, that they get older. At the end of his life, Stalin was probably more paranoid than ever and continued the purges even as he, as he starts self-deification, ordering even larger statues of themselves. But the point I'm trying to make is that some of them, the ones who tend to fail, in particular Ceausescu, uh, start believing in their own cult. <laughs> I have no doubt that Ceausescu, Romania, um, after a while becomes quite convinced that he is the genius that the people portray him to be. And he's got a never-ending, insatiable appetite for more distinctions, more university degrees, more honours. He collects them, literally. He counts them in the evening, very much like a stamp collector. So he becomes a victim of the cult himself. 
I said earlier on that the cult is there to make the general population and members of the inner circle a captive. But Ceausescu becomes a prisoner of his own cult, believes in it, fails to read the signs, and is very upset. At first, full of disbelief, then upset that the population actually turns against him. He can't see it. You mentioned this paranoia as a common theme um, in the fall of these dictators. Did you find any other commonalities with what brought these cults to an end? Um, well, the paranoia is, of course, there all along. Um, in the case of Adolf Hitler, it is said of him that he has an instinct from the very beginning that tells him who he can trust and who he can't. Of Mussolini, it is said that he has a peasant suspicion of other people. So all of them are extremely suspicious of others, in particular those who might stab in the back. Now I think this is probably one of the great attributes of dictators, that they trust no one. In the case of Duvalier, and in the case of Stalin, and in the case of Mao, uh, they prevail because they're happy to, to purge, punish, occasionally execute, friends and foes alike. It helps a great deal. You should never trust the hand that feeds you. You should always turn against it. Uh, in Ethiopia, Mengistu um, is someone who was um, mentored by a general called Aman Andom uh, a mere year or two after the coup in 1974 against Haile Selassie, the emperor. Um, Mengistu has a team sent to his mentor's home where he's shot dead. What, what's it been like living, living with these dictators? How, how is it kind of, was there anyone there that you wished you could have included or was, were these men self-selecting for your book? Well, I had a long list of about 12, but then you realise that um, it's an awful lot of work um, to, 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 to write so much. And in any event, I think about eight seems to me to be the right number to, to see common features, but also to see that in every single case, there will be an exception to the rules. So you can't come up with the title as how to be a dictator. You can't come up with, you know, the 12 characteristics of a dictator. You might say, for instance, that... Every dictator relies on what is basically uh, the Leninist conception of a revolution, that you have a, a party that carries through the revolution and engineers it from above. The revolutionary vanguard. You exactly. Mentioned. The revolutionary vanguard. So Hitler has one. Mussolini has one. Both are admirers of Lenin. Um, but not so Duvalier. He does not have any party at all. Mengistu with uh, other military men, seizes power, but doesn't start building up a Marxist party till many years later, some 10 years after the revolution. So there's always an exception to the rule. Um, so I thought eight was about all right. Um, it could have been slightly more, could have been less. I had Gaddafi on my, on my short list, uh, but he didn't really quite make it... Uh, I think there's another question. Who, who would you like to spend an afternoon with? Uh, they're all quite awful. I think there might be a slight misconception in the case of Hitler. 
in the sense that we only see him rent and rave at crowds. There's only one tape available where he speaks normally to another human being, a recording made while he was traveling on a train. And he sounds reasonably straightforward. But nonetheless, he always dominated the conversation. There's not a lot you could say. I think possibly Kim Il-sung would have been not only a charming man like many others, but also someone who would have been interested in a conversation unlike the others. So he, he would have been the one I would pick if, if, if I had to be punished by having to spend uh, an afternoon having tea with one of them. Well, we won't inflict that on you. <laughs> um, you. You do write that dictators today, w- with the exception of Kim Jong-un, are a long way from instilling the fear of their predecessors. But uh, nevertheless, you, you do question in the book whether we're seeing what you call a revival of some of these techniques um, on the world stage. Where might me- where might we see this cult of personality today? Well, of course, Putin comes to mind. And I think that only about a week ago, um, the slandering Putin was outlawed, which tells you that he's not much of a dictator because if she, a good dictator would have done, done that many, many, many years ago. And as um, a, a good friend and historian uh, of mine, Robert uh, Service says, you can go to Moscow, you can Google quite a few things about Putin and you, you will find the people who disagree with him. Uh, look at the demonstrations going on in Moscow, right? Um, when it comes to um, Kim III, I call him Kim III, it really is a dynasty, uh, they're quite clearly, we are dealing with a straightforward, old-fashioned 20th century dictatorship. Um, Xi Jinping, across the border, I think is very close to being one of those old-fashioned dictators. He certainly has closed down that country drastically over the last number of years. Um, You may remember what I said earlier on, it's a very simple test. Go to a country and try to find somebody who speaks out against the man in charge. Very difficult in the People's Republic of China today. People are demonstrating by the hundreds of thousands in Hong Kong, but across the border, very difficult to find any one person who offers his support for Hong Kong. Not a clash of civilizations, but an indication of the extent to which public opinion is strictly controlled there. So, yes, Xi Jinping has his little red book. Yes, Xi Jinping has his whole iconography. And yes, Xi Jinping towers far above his peers. And it would be dangerous to speak out against him. Um, Erdogan, Turkey, possibly. Getting very close indeed. So, there's a good list of people. But ultimately, ultimately, even if we look at North Korea, the extent of human misery and death is measured by the tens of millions in those regimes in the 20th century. be very hard to say that it's similar today. They are not um, on the ascendant. They're playing a losing game. It may not seem to us like that. It might seem that there are, uh, you know, that, that democracy is under attack. And it's always good to be vigilant. One must be vigilant. But seen from a much longer historical perspective, these dictators are, are playing a very weak hand. They will lose. 
that was Frank Dakota. His book, How to Be a Dictator, The Cult of Personality in the 20th Century, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. Frank has also written a feature on the death of dictators. You can find that at our website, historyextra.com forward slash dictator hyphen deaths. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when I'll be speaking to the stonemason Andrew Zeminski about Britain's most spectacular stone monuments.